Welcome to the Way of the Leader podcast. In this episode, we dive deep into the world of leadership with a seasoned coach of leaders, Jason Olivier. As we explore the do's and don'ts of effective leadership, we uncover the raw and honest truth about what it takes to be a successful leader. All right. So, Jason, yes, it's great. It's great to have you on the show. Um, so lots and lots and lots of questions to dive into. Uh, are you ready? I hope so, Justin, for God's sake. I hope I am. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Jason, uh, the first question that I want to ask is, um, can you define leadership in your own words? You know, everybody's got their own kind of like meaning and definitions and things like that. And so don't cater to the masses. Like, what are your thoughts on this? How would you define leadership? Um, For me, leadership is the ability to create a vision an energy behind that vision that people can rally behind, they can connect to and support uh, that also is rooted in the ability to think strategically uh, to, to counterpart to a counterpart to that vision and idea that where an, uh, where an individual wants to take themselves, a team or an organization to. Uh, so having the, also the mental capacity to frame a strategic plan that is uh, a guide or a North Star in, in that direction. I also think that there are some attributes to leadership that are pretty important to achieve those two things, which is um, emotional resilience, um, grit, I think of adjectives such as um, a functional non, uh, a functional unwavering commitment to where they want to go. And I think on some level, a healthy or functional competitive element to uh, their work and their vision and their dreams. And the last thing that I think for me embodies leadership is uh, the ability to be wrong and not uh, deviate from the vision and the ability to uh, be emotionally intelligent in navigating uh, those aspects. Wow. That's, a, I mean, like that's quite a definition and you've included a lot of you know, like a lot of good things in there. You talked about vision, you talked about strategy, you talked about an unwaveringness to things as well as obviously then being able to be wrong, that emotional agility, I suppose. The Way of the Leader podcast delves into the world of leadership with a unique focus on what it takes to be successful. Join us as we interview successful leaders, leadership coaches, and authors of leadership books and research, teasing out the do's and don'ts of effective leadership. We explore the impact of personal development on leadership and discuss strategies for inspiring and motivating your team. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just an aspiring leader, this podcast provides valuable insights and guidance for elevating your leadership game. Tune into The Way of the Leader and discover the secrets of effective leadership. At The Way of the Leader, we believe in learning from the best. If you know a great leader in your network who would make a great guest on our show, we'd love to hear from you please feel free to reach out to us with your suggestions and we'll do our best to feature them on an upcoming episode. Thank you for listening and we look forward to hearing from you. Um, so let me ask you then the question of, well, that comes up naturally for me is, 
um, you've coached a lot of people and you've coached a lot of lead leaders. Um, how many leaders that you've coached actually match this criteria? It's definitely a small number. I, I, <laughs> I would say uh, I've seen it in, in, in many shades of gray. I have seen those characteristics embodied and I have seen how late leaders have created a massive amount of change. Um, and it's been a really powerful. I mean, when you asked me the question, the first thing I was thinking about it was a couple of two or three leaders that I've worked with. And I asked myself, um, what was I, and why was I so impressed about how they were leading some uncharted territories that were very difficult and muddy and, and helping me formulate the answer to that question. And I would say there's a, a fair amount of leaders out there that do well with several of those areas, but not all of those areas. Um, and then therefore they were getting involved with some coaching. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I remember specifically working with one leader who just was ruthless with their vision of where they think the organization could go towards. Um, and yet they struggled with the emotional intelligence piece uh, in regards to helping people connect with that message and why it was important. He tended to be too, my experience of him, uh, very reactive uh, mm. and very uh, challenging when people, quote unquote, didn't get on the boat uh, to row uh, and to use their oar in, in the direction that he wanted to. So, you know, I think of it as... Yeah. Sorry, I was going to agree with you and say that that's definitely a characteristic that I see in a lot of like the, the leaders, either in the, the people that I coach as well or within, you know, the, you know, the surrounding work environment. You know, there's a lot of leaders of the people that I coach that obviously come across in that overwhelming, bullish manner where they get very reactive and triggered when you're not doing everything you should be doing and why aren't you jumping on board with the vision of the company, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, I, I appreciate that. Um, so just for my benefit, I, I think and feel like if I were to restate the opening question to me about what is the definition of leader, <clears throat> at the end of the day is the ability to create a vision. Uh, number two is the ability to have the intellectual depth and substance to navigate the, the creation of a strategic plan that is a guiding document uh, that is a, a strategic plan that embodies how to get to that vision. And then, you know, this emotional resilience, this emotional intelligence, uh, which I think it does include uh, the ability to be okay with being wrong and uh, allowing the uh, an inherent learning uh, that needs to occur, iterations that need to occur, and as a result, not that that doesn't detract them from uh, the ability to continue to move forward with that vision. Okay. So um, I just thought I might have been a little long winded on that first one. Yeah. So I'm, well, I'm going to su <laughs> summarize yeah, it here. Can... Let me see if I can get this right. So you're saying that a leader must have a vision. Then they need to also then have the strategy to then implement that vision. And they also need the emotional resiliency to be able to see that, that strategy through 
um, all the turmoil and all the ups and downs and be able to adjust according uh, themselves according to that strategy to achieve the vision. Yeah, and as I hear you say that, one variable that I would probably hearing is this back and forth, Ed, is it's a different slant to willingness to be wrong. It is also the willingness to know what one's limitations are. You know, mm -hmm. what are my yeah. strengths and what are my weaknesses per se? And how do I surround myself with people uh, who are really good at what they're capable of doing that is either supportive or are initiating aspects of this vision and strategic plan that I can partner with so that it becomes a collaborative team-based approach. I, I've just seen a lot of times where um, when you don't get the right people on the right on the bus in the in, in the right seats, Mm -hmm. uh, it can create a kind uh, a very much of a, a burnout for leaders as well. I th throw that in the mix in, in, in how I experience good leadership. That's it's very interesting because obviously, like um, what what we're trying to do with the the podcast is raise the awareness of um, you know how leadership goes hand in hand with self awareness, and so you know it sounds very much like what you're saying is that there is a self awareness element. It's not necessarily that you have to say that you're wrong, but you have to be aware of strengths, weaknesses, and where to kind of like understand your limitations or understand you can absolutely plow through all on your own as well as a leader and how that give and take exists. That's awesome. So, um, I okay, let's change things up a little bit. So now going from that definition of leader, I actually want to throw this back. Um, you and I had a conversation earlier on about how there's a distinct difference between leaders and managers. And so um, you know, for me, one of my resistances is that I don't define leader in terms of visionaries because I will, I will say that founders are visionaries and leaders are people who then implement the, the vision of a founder because a founder usually doesn't have the same skills. And especially this is, of course, talking about the startup roles. And, you know, it's a, it's, it's a nuanced topic anyway. There's, there's not going to be a right answer because there's so many different forms of leadership. But you mentioned something very interesting about the difference and the distinction between leaders and managers. And so would you mind elaborating on that for us for a second? So for, uh, as I've outlined with leaders, I, I would say I'm biased towards what I define leaders. For me, the definition, therefore, of managers are uh, those who uh, are more of the uh, in the trenches, the executors, the, the tactical executors of the strategic plan. So if the strategic plan is a document that guides behaviors and focus and priorities of an organization for a three to five year window, to me, the managers are, how do we take this three to five year plan and chop it up into annual goals, quarterly goals, weekly goals, and manage the operational execution to that is aligned with this three to five year plan? So they're more of the managers and managing behaviors of employees. Uh, they're looking at operational plans. They're looking at where we on target or off target related to real-time feedback of customers, whether there are internal customers or external customers. Um, <clears throat> and they're providing feedback loops to leadership in regards to what's working and what's not working. And then for me, that loop closing goes back to leaders. And then leaders are the ones who are saying, um, 
how do we cross pollinate what is working and best practices across the enterprise, across the system? Okay. So, um, you know, that's how I will say I generally look at management versus leadership. Uh, that's so interesting. And, you know, as you as you're speaking, I, I get this this concept in my head about the size and the scope of obviously the organization and obviously within smaller organizations. There isn't necessarily a distinct difference between leadership and management because it's probably the same person if you've got, let's say, a structure of like zero to 50, you know, an organization that's quite a small organization. So what, at what size of organization would you, see, would you say that distinction really comes into play between managers and leaders? I think it's a good question, Justin. I would say in this moment, um, I'm indifferent to the size. I think it's more of a function and role than the who. Mm. You know, if you have to, to your point, if you're a small company, if you have 10 people, you have 40 people. Um, and I remember where, for me at times, I am definitely thinking about where do I want the strategic direction of a brand, of my brand, and how does that play out? Who am I really trying to meet as an audience? Who do I want to scale and expand my reach to? I think those are all um, questions about vision, uh, where the, I think, to the best of my ability, the market is and where it's going. What more knowledge and research do I need to do in order to understand you know, the strategic implications? Mm -hmm. Then it's you know, the day-to-day -day practical stuff. What what content do I need to generate today or Friday? Um, how do I keep this program that I've designed afloat and make iteration, iterations and improvements to it one course uh, at a time? Um, you know, to me, that's that's managing. That's managing of my services, managing of products, of content, uh, mm. you know, versus leadership is saying, do I have all the right services in order to meet the needs of my my target audience? Right, and and right. what what direction does that need to go? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I've worked with all kinds of sizes of organizations. And in many ways, uh, I am a one person wrecking crew in most of my time. So I have to wear those multiple hats. It's similar for me when we talk about the idea that uh, what what looks like consulting versus what looks like coaching, you know, to me, they're two different functions, but I have to play both at different times. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great answer. So, yeah, I never thought about it like that in terms of the roles. So that makes a lot more sense now as well in terms of, yeah, um, you have a lot more of the, the role kind of um, specialization when you can afford to have that role specialization, then you have people who have those strengths, yeah, leading into that 100%. Yeah, cool. Uh, I love it. All right, so uh, let's, let's take it back. All right, so in your coaching experience, uh, what, do you, what do you find that most people, you know, misunderstand about, you know, leadership? Like, what are the biggest assumptions that they make that perhaps are, uh, you know, to your mind, um, leading them astray? Their ability to communicate and be articulate um, and uh, the ability to uh, truly listen to what's working and what's not working 
and um, thinking uh, critically about um, how to mitigate uh, moving and, and the ability to move forward as a team, as a as a group, or with a set of goals. The other thing, the last thing, maybe the predominant one that, uh, as I'm recalling different uh, leaders that I've worked with, is they think and feel like uh, I can just push my agenda and uh, I'll use the word force, but it, it, you can consider that word in multiple layers here, but force their leadership style and make it as a get on board or get the hell out kind of approach. Mm-hmm. They're not so contextually flexible to the people around them. Um, that is fair. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I think, you know, it, it seems that I find the same thing as well with a lot of people thinking this is what leadership is, you know, and get on board or, you know, get off. And very much there's a very hard line between that and not as much kind of gray area as in like, oh, what kind of leader do I need to be for this context, let's say? You know, am I appropriate person for this group of people, but also in this organization, in this time, et cetera? So I, I find it very interesting to discuss the context-based approach of leadership as well. Yeah, thank you, Justin, for saying that. It reminded me of a lot of work I did on the theory and the science of situation awareness. So it was Mm -hmm. developed in the military. Um, And a lot of uh, folks in the healthcare industry that I've consulted with and coached with, uh, it's a concept and a model that I've shared and we've used. So to piggyback on what you're sharing, for me, it is the ability to be situationally aware of myself and of others who am i talking to to the best of my ability how can i communicate and show up that doesn't alienate but aligns and connects i think are important factors what i'm wanted to share in line of what you were sharing and i think it's more difficult to connect and ask questions for the purposes of influence, which there's all kinds of books written on on influence and what influences people. Um, but I think that there is a strong factor around the ability to connect and influence through open-ended questions and through connection versus just giving mandates. I mean, giving mandates is the quote-unquote short-term fix for a long, long-term non-fix, I call it. Um, it just won't fix it long-term, but it sure will get you the results on the short-term and people get into nothing but defiance and compliance behaviors. I remember I had a conversation with a leader one time who was one of those leaders I was thinking of before who was super sharp and unbelievably talented in certain of those long definitions I gave of leadership and some of which he was just missing. And I said, I said to him, I'm like, do you realize that at times you get into that place of asking powerful open-ended questions 
that are 12 words or less and that are intense, but not without empathy that they're offered and not without really brilliant insight that challenges the team to really take this question that's laser-like, that is used to elevate people's thinking and emoting about the work and they come away more engaged to want to solve the or answer the question that you're asking, even if they have to follow up in a week, a month with this is what worked, this is what didn't work relative to your challenging question. And I said, you do that maybe 10, 20% of the time. And I'm like, look how people feel right now. They're energized, they're engaged. They feel very impassioned for the work. And I said, would you consider doing more of that? And that is basically guiding your, using your leadership through open-ended questions versus statements, right? Mm -hmm. Which is another little tagline, statements push, questions lead. Uh, to mm. consider. Mm. And he said, and he said to me, I don't have time for that. And I'm not <laughs> going to make time for that. I'm just need to tell people what to do so that we can move forward. <clears throat> so I said, are you really willing to disengage with people and have people disengage with you? He said, if I need to do that for right now, that's what I'm going to do. Like just wow. the close minded and heartedness of saying, I tried to capitalize on the behaviors and the thinking and and all of the quote-unquote idealism of what a powerful leader asking open-ended surgical-like questions looks like, feels like. And in the moment, he still was like, yeah, but at the end of the day, I got to get people to, you know, I got to herd cats here. I got to herd cattle, you know, and I got to get them going in a certain direction. And um, that would be a good example, you know. That's a great example, actually. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's definitely a lot of that in leadership. And so, um, you know, this actually brings up the next question, which is this idea of like, what do, you, what do you find people are usually terrible at when they first start, you know, leadership roles, leadership positions? You know, so is this a, quite a common thread with them, this, this inability to necessarily adapt or evolve in the beginning? Or is this something that develops longer? So open-ended to you what's what's something that people usually are terrible at when they become leaders i think they make an assumption that if i led a project or i led something with a smaller scope or that i'm a good manager per my definition that that will equally lead to the assumption that um, i'm qualified to be a leader Mm. and i feel like a lot of times um our definitions about what and the ability to predict behavioral success as a leader is pretty mm, questionable at times. So I think people end up being put in roles that they're not ready for. Uh, the succession planning is not there. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, we just assume that they've had some level of success. Therefore, you know, it's a quick, easy jump up and, and, you know, do what you did here, but on a much larger scale. And I see that uh, sometimes. I I don't know. Have you, have you heard of the Peter principle? Uh, Maybe, but maybe not, not in the way that that's phrased. So maybe I have, maybe I probably have not. The, the, the concept is that a person is promoted to the level of their incompetency. 
So just because you're good at one level, then you get promoted and all of a sudden you've shown like, oh, you, you don't have the skills for that level. And so you'll stop at that level. You won't necessarily be demoted because that's actually very bad. Obviously, in organizations, they, they shy away from demoting people back to, you know, the previous positions. Um, and so people get promoted in these such organizations to the, to the, the point of their incompetency. And so it sounds very much like what you're saying now. Yeah. You know, I, I saw a lot of that at times. Um, and to me, the, 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 the antidote to that is um, be a sponge, be a learner, ask a lot of questions. Uh, again, it goes back to that willingness to be wrong. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I have seen people promoted. It goes one of two directions. I've seen people who enter the, the promotion. It might be a little bit like throwing, being thrown into the deep end of the pool. And what I've found is the ability to, to swim or paddle in that deep end is are, are things of which I found is, can I learn? Uh, can I ask questions? Can I be, and that's where I got some of my examples of, uh, am I willing to be wrong? Um, can I can I ask for feedback and genuinely consider it and adapt? Because people who work for leaders, they're looking for people who are authentic and are vulnerable and honest. I and take responsibility. I own that. Uh, I made a bad decision. Uh, here's the lessons learned. Here's what's important for me moving forward, and here's what I commit to. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of that is overlapped with with communications. So being clear on communications, being clear that it's a learning model uh, and that there's a steep uphill climb when they do get promoted. Um, I have seen those folks really thrive and really do well um, versus an over-reliance on what I was successful with and thinking that there's a correlation that that's going to guarantee my success moving forward which I have found that just the variables are different. You know, the, uh, the clients are different. Uh, the, the employees are, are different. You know, the larger you scale something, the more, uh, more variables that you're going to have to account for in your design and in your leadership style. Uh, that, that idea of, uh, of forcing people through mandates that might've worked in a, in a microsystem Mm -hmm. uh, to use that term. Uh, but I, at a macro level, um, you, you can't do that. So to me, that's a skill of negotiating. It's a skill of uh, incorporating that situation awareness and figuring out how do I connect through open-ended questions versus mandates. That really pops it. If you've been reliant upon that strategy, i.e. mandates and forcing and that just the the bigger you your leadership responsibilities are, there just becomes a bigger gap between not having that skill set, and then you're scrounging, you know. Then you're spending time trying to figure out that skill which you've neglected for a long period of time. And mm -hmm. that one leader that I was referring to, <clears throat> he got kicked in the ass, you know, metaphorically, and eventually came around after all kinds of battle scars uh, of being a much better leader from the standpoint of asking questions and trying to influence. Um, 
and it actually eventually became a strong suit or more of a strong suit um, for him than previous. Wonderful. I mean, that's, you know, you learn, you learn the easy way or the hard way, I suppose, you know, this is what it sounds like. Yeah. Um, and well, so this is the question then is, is, you know, like obviously through your, through your coaching, you obviously work on raising a lot of self-awareness and helping people to see their, you know, vulnerabilities and things like that. You know, what are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? Um, what, what kind of tools do you use in order to help people assess that? Well, uh, I have my inner compass personality assessment. So um, almost, uh, well, just about every single leader that I work with, I will ask them to take that. Mm-hmm. And then I do a review with them uh, of their results. So it's based on nine personality types. It's gender neutral. It's cultural neutral. And it gives a good sense of left and right brain capability, capacity, how they work with teams, how much they want to work with teams, uh, how much uh, visionary ideas are are they driven by, uh, how much of them are more suited for customer service versus a leadership role um, versus that management role, how they might self-sabotage and therefore undermine themselves and their leadership capability or even for that matter, management abilities. It would highlight ways in which, um, you know, a formal plan to close the gap on some of the things that we've already talked about, about what are the definition of, you know, leadership. So we'll go into, you know, things like that. Um, Then I used to teach an improvement uh, science uh, or co-teach an improvement science and leadership course. Um, it was uh, equivalent to probably the, uh, the like a green belt for um, Six Sigma World on how to think about process improvement and the science of how to improve systems. And then we embedded uh, cultural uh, change and leadership styles. <clears throat> so I would uh, work them through those different mo- uh, models and in, in methods and how to look at data, how to make data-driven decision-making, um, how to poke holes in how we use or don't use data. Um, when is there a time to enhance communication and developing communication plans and being systemic in, in all of the ways in which information is deployed so it's systemic and clear and concise. Uh, we've also taught a lot of behaviors around uh, how do leaders lead for change? So uh, understanding that, uh, at least through um, human engineering, human factors engineering, that there are the research published talks about three primary human error factors. So skill-based, knowledge-based, and rule-based human errors. And so how can you as a leader use, for example, that model to help diagnose, for lack of terms, the system's performance or an individual employee's performance is a skill rule or knowledge-based errors. And as a result, how do you then, uh, what are your interventions to close those gaps? So simply put as a leader, I'm leading for change and I'm trying to sniff out the system issues 
uh, in those types of human errors, which lead to poor outcomes, whether through a patient experience outcome, a clinical outcome, staff engagement outcome, et cetera. So those are some of the models uh, that I would talk with leaders about. And, uh, and then the last thing I would say is I would make them aware of what I've learned over time and what uh, a lot of uh, organizational development literature from my my past would use around how leaders create a uh, how leaders create culture, and what are those factors, uh, such as who gets punished and who gets rewarded. Well, what do you mean exactly when you say leaders develop culture? Because I've heard this word thrown around a lot, and obviously, like when. When you talk about culture in general and you talk about like, oh, yes, you know, the American culture, for example, um, defining culture is always going to be a nitty gritty. Now, when we talk about workplace culture, what are, what are you referring, uh, referring to? I'm referring to the actual behaviors and attitudes of the employee and the staff and the leadership that are rooted in myths, stories, the unwritten policies and behaviors that people perform and actually do. So that is what creates culture at a micro and macro level. So as a result, for me, the leaders are 100% responsible for that. Mm. That's where the rubber meets the road. Um, And so uh, they might, and here's the danger is, is that they might have a culture of X, and the leader might think and have a policy of why, then that's where a lot of people say policies just become a dust collector of ink on a piece of paper that sits on in the desk of one of the leaders, but it's not how we function and how we operate here. Let me tell you the real story of how we get our stuff done. You know, like the supervisors say, nah, the leaders are so disconnected. They don't know their ass from their elbow what's really going on. You know, this is how um, how it actually gets done. Like that, what they share is the actual symptom of the culture within that organization. And that's where sometimes leaders are so disconnected from what's going on operationally. Um, so, so, you know, to me, at the end of the day, the leaders establish culture, whether they allow it through omission or they are intentionally creating it. And so I talk mm. with leaders about the, that whole reference I made about who gets punished and who gets rewarded um, in the sense of performance, employee performance and evaluations, who's getting promoted, who's not getting promoted. <clears throat> um, if you stand up and advocate or challenge the current strategy, uh, do you still have a job tomorrow? Do you get your hands slapped? Do you get you know shamed or embarrassed in a team meeting because you're raising potentially good objections to other strategies or other ideas or things that are in conflict? And then you know who know. And then another variable that I talk with them about is who knows what information and when. So <clears throat> that's just another factor. And then uh, communication is another cultural factor. So. There are a couple others, but th- those are just some of the things that I talk with them about because their behaviors is what will determine, <laughs> excuse me, the function of their scope of who they're responsible for or their body of work. Right. Yeah. 
That makes a lot of sense. Well, I want to, you know, um, it's so interesting. I had to write down the skills, rules, and knowledge-based errors. Like that, that is fantastic, I think, just in and of itself. And you're like dropping a lot of like gold for a lot of people here. So let's, uh, I just want to rewind a little bit. You talked about your inner compass personality assessment. And um, I want you to talk about that because I'm pretending, of course, I'm playing devil's advocate here that I know nothing about it. But the whole reason why I invited you on to have this podcast with me is that I've just finished training and I'm currently certified in being able to coach according to your personalized assessments. So I've taken your course. So for those who are interested, it is a fantastic course. How long was it? Three months? Uh, 15 weeks. 15 weeks. Yeah. So just over three months. And uh, it was fantastic. It's definitely the most complex personality assessment that I've um, become qualified in as well. And so you know the 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 gambit of personality assessments, of various uh, attitudinal assessments or perspective assessments. You know, like both of us are trained in the the energetic leadership index as well as from from IPEC. And you know, I love that it's a great tool, but I would actually more use the inner compass personality assessment. So what I want to do is go back to that, and I want you to talk about that for a second. Um, particularly in the case of um, how this is better than other assessments? Like why, why develop this in the beginning? Like what, what was the need that, that was the problem here? So I, I, I have taken and I've, let me say it this way. I have taken the Myers-Briggs. I've taken the DISC. I've taken the, what's called an LH step. I have taken the Strength Finder. Um, and I've taken other uh, assessments as well. Uh, I've sat in week-long trainings for Myers-Briggs and in DISC and uh, et cetera. So for me, what I appreciate is um, it's simple. It's straightforward. Um, it can give you insight um, into things about oneself that, uh, might be new and novel and and cool that I never really thought about, or I have thought about it, but it set it in a way that kind of crystallized my understanding of myself. And so I don't want to say that there's no utility in them. There are, and there is. My bias was, is that it was very behavior-based or attitudinal-based. And it didn't get into really understanding why I was motivated for the things that I was motivated for. Why were those behaviors showing up? What was the fuel source that was driving my behaviors? And that bias of wanting to know why and knowing my background in improvement science, you know, we're always trying to look at cause and effect as much as we can. And as a result, um, if we can get to the root cause um, then I can really genuinely fix it and deal with the, and then as a result of fixing it at the root, the symptoms will fall in line with the root solution or the root fix. So this bias of digging a little bit deeper was really important to me. Um, and that kind of was one big impetus in my heart and mind to collaborate with my business partner, 
who uh, has passed the last couple of years, who was a clinical psychologist, he and I would work together on uh, really utilizing therefore the Enneagram in particular, because it would really dig into uh, the core fears and core motivations and desires for the nine different types. And then the beauty of the intercompass assessment was that we were looking at then measuring um, in a unique way, all the nine types. So to me, it was systemic. Uh, it was getting to the core motivations and fears and desires and being able to uh, look at that as a complete puzzle, complete picture as much as I could um, in regards to who I'm working with as a leader or as a manager, including right. myself. Yeah. yeah. And that to me was a, was the, the, the systems thinking and the getting at the root and understanding how all the parts were impacting and how they were using these different strategies, these behaviors fundamentally as compensation strategies for their core beliefs, fears, and desires. So if I were to indulge in a moment, that one leader that I was referring to when I said, do you see the beauty of asking closed-ended, um, open-ended questions that are really precise and jarring in a positive way to get really people to think about things differently? You know, the importance of how good open-ended questions elevates your thinking and feeling about something as you explore the answer <clears throat> excuse me, that would be a great example for where, and I said, why don't you do more of that? Well, in the Enneagram world, he was a type eight. And so for him, if I ask open-ended questions, and if I am willing to consider other perspectives, there was the association where I am vulnerable and weak and by being more powerful, I just give mandates and force people into what I want them to do. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have any issues. My fear of being vulnerable to it going in a direction that I don't want it to go in is now really the driving factor. So it helped me because he was a type eight. So I used the Enneagram with him. So it helped me to coach him over time to really undermine that association. Right, yeah. Because that was part of what he, on one side of it, he wanted coaching for that, but on the other side of it, he still was resistant to it because of, it meant my my fears as a type eight are going to come right to the surface. Mm. So that's what I was focusing on rather than him getting better at asking open-ended questions. To me, it was, if I can deal with the root association of his fears, then his natural ability to ask questions uh, would become self-evident. And he got and he got better with doing that over time. Mm -hmm. So that would be an example of why I have felt it's important to use the intercompass assessment because I wasn't just trying to replace behavior chain. I wasn't trying to do behavior modification without having a clear North Star or uh, a real lighthouse as to what his motivations and fears and desires were to begin with. So it's, it's so fascinating to me. Uh, I see the same thing where um, a lot of people will maybe seek out coaching 
because they want a solution to a problem. They want a behavior change, the, the short-term fix, essentially. And half of the conversation then comes around the awareness that why are they, why, why is the situation created in the first place? Is usually because they're reinforcing this childhood pattern to achieve their, the, the goals, the wants, the desires, you know, move away from the fears as well of um, what I've learned now through your system as well. So it's become a very, very, very powerful tool that I use in my coaching. Uh, I find it interesting in terms of, you know, basically making sure that there are no long-term issues through those, um, you know, through that tool, you can identify, oh, this person's probably going to lean into this a lot. You know, one of my clients definitely um, almost hides behind a lot of their, their fears, their insecurities, and they do all the things that make those um, feel good. Like, look, look at how good I am. Of course, I can't be bad if this is the case. And, and yet creates an environment where there is no self-care happening because they're too busy on the business to, to have self-care come in. Or if self-care comes in, it needs to be done at a time where self-care is not going to be prioritized over the business because the, doing the business thing helps them to kind of, you know, feed into all of their childhood patterns, all of those, those inner critic patterns. So I am good if I, or I am strong if I, if I work on the business, but I'm, I'm not strong if I, you know, go into art. And so the self-care element of it is such a big deal. And that's, that's what's really come out of it is the ability for a person to be able to hold up, you know, that assessment as a, as a mirror to themselves. So this goes into my next question, which is how often do you find leaders um, not prioritizing their their self-care? That feels like it's a loaded question. And I, I love the question, but it, um, it depends <laughs> upon uh, self-care. Um, most leaders don't eat well. Most leaders that I've experienced uh, rely on coffee, stimulants. Um, most leaders... No, um, <clears throat> they've lacked consistent sleep to recharge. Um, they don't move as much, um, you know, so from lifestyle factors, do they engage in self-care? Uh, I would say is there's a lot to be desired there. And that ultimately leads to burnout. It ultimately leads to, um, a loss of what's what's the priorities. I can't tell you how many um, leaders of one company in particular that I've worked with uh, a handful of them, and um, <clears throat> they're exhausted. You know, like literally. Um, I don't have time for family by the end of the night. I'm I'm just fried. I don't have much energy, and when they do show up, it's. I know I need to, or I have an obligation to for to show up to my family, but I, I'm I, I'm dragging, mm-hmm. and that that sense of fear that if I get off this wheel, uh, work is just going to pile up, um, 
you know, the, the demand and the expectation of my attention and my the amount of time and how it eats into family time. Uh, they are not, a, you know, the company's operating approach is your commodity. And that's my word for summarizing how I interpret what they're what they've shared with me. And mm -hmm. I would summarize it as I'm a commodity. And if I don't keep up and keep on, you know, uh, I may or may not have a job. And that's, you know, putting in 12 hour days. Yeah. Um, so I, it's very difficult. So um, at the end of the day, we talk about some key priorities. Um, can you get your sleep? Can you be really clear about the food that you eat? Can we get really clear about, you know, an evening walk with the family? Like some of those things are just some of the priorities that uh, I ask them to consider. <clears throat> and I have, in many ways, I have to, it's a pretty interesting word I use. It's almost as if I have to communicate it that in order for you to have the energy to sustain your professional leadership role and being good at it and having the energy for it, these are the strategies that will help you sustain and help you manage having the energy necessary for the work. I found that if I tee it up that way, it captures their attention because they know viscerally what I'm talking about, what they've shared is I'm exhausted. And if I can find ways that don't disrupt their day all that much, but give them the ability to refuel, you know, with a bang for the buck, yeah. Yeah. they they tend to be willing to pay more attention to that. So I've really banked on sleep, food, and um, and you know evening walks, or walk to meetings, or take the stairs versus the elevator, and that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. uh, as being key important proponents of that. And I do think and feel like at the end of the day, that's why we have this concept around midlife professional crisis and career struggles. Like, you know, I don't have the energy anymore. Like I used to, when I was in my twenties and thirties and even my early part of my forties, I could sprint. I'm getting older. Now the consequences of that lifestyle are catching up to me or the existential questions that I feel like a lot of leaders ask themselves, is this, I, I put myself in, in put my eggs in this basket. Uh, is this really what I wanted to do with life? How do I want to spend the second half of my career? <clears throat> do I want to keep at the same pace? Do I want to, you know, get out and just do now maybe some consulting part time in order to kind of find my life, find a way with my, my partner. And now that I'm becoming an empty nester or, you know, all of those dynamics start kicking in and, you know, the home dynamics will change when, when mm. the kids go off to college and stuff like that. So at some point, it may not be when they're in their thirties and raring to, you know, and they're trying to blow up their career and make it big. It's hard to have sometimes that self-care um, conversation that they're willing to have with themselves. Uh, but I've seen it when they're in their late forties early fifties. Uh, and I can attest to my version of that. Um, you know, the ass kicking of life and the invitation of life, both, um, 
seem to facilitate uh, a challenge for self-care and how to how can I approach things a little bit differently? Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's profound to kind of ask those kind of questions and think about it as well. And the thing that I always think right now, I've I've thought it since the beginning. I was like, I should have also perhaps introduced you to be a holistic health coach as well. You know, I know your qualifications for holistic health coaching, which is um, for those who don't know, all connected with um, you know sleep and food and movement and exercise and family emotionality. You know, all the all the good stuff. So um, you know, talking about this, it's very interesting to hear you speak about leaders like this as well, um, and to what degree leaders don't necessarily prioritize their holistic health and how much it could influence their their performance in leadership as well. Very interestingly, there was a study that was done that showed that Fortune 500 leaders that actually cope very well with stress have a what's known as a serious leisure activity, something that allows them to dedicate themselves fervently to outside of work, which is like an off-gas almost, a way to depressurize the system so that they don't think about work. They don't burn out. But it tends to be just as much of a serious kind of commitment as work is. You know, they tend to be like these triathletes who push themselves to then participate in like Ironmans or something like that, which is just as, it could be just as harmful for the body, I suppose. Uh, how much in your experience have you found um, leaders like this? You know, it's funny. Uh, most of my life has been in healthcare, and I would say it's rare. I mean, it's extremely, extremely rare, <clears throat> which is, you know, a paradox. Uh, it, it's kind of like the cardiologist who you who you go into an, an appointment and they're smoking a pack of cigarettes, you know. <laughs> That's that. Honestly, that is more of my experience than the entrepreneur who's doing uh, CrossFit five days a week and looks uh, on the surface all jacked and yet internally is a hot mess hormonally and everything else, you know? So um, I have too many stories to tell you the other, <laughs> not the, not the ones you're giving me, Justin, I would say is like, a, here's a good one. Uh, I would work with this neuro neurologist who is internationally known, super published, sits on an, on a national board uh, for reviewing publications and, and research. And I was coaching him for about a year. And every time I met with him one-to-one, -one, he had a little mini fridge underneath his desk. And what do you think he had stacked in that refrigerator? If you had one guess. <laughs> I don't know. Alcohol. Uh, that's a good one. No, but uh, <laughs> he would have Coca-Cola. Oh and gosh. And he would be drinking at least two in a one-hour uh, meeting I had with him all the time, all the time. He'd come in. He was always like a couple of minutes late. He'd swing behind me, sit at his desk. What's going on, Jason? Open up his fridge, pop open the uh, Coca-Cola, start sipping and say, all right, let's, let's, let's have our meeting. Let's have our agenda for today. <laughs> <clears throat> and... Um, I think if anything, here is the one of the world's well-known research pediatric neurologists. And here he was drinking Coca-Cola. 
So if that tells you anything as a symptom, uh, at least within healthcare, about uh, one's personal as well as clinical understanding of my body, what I put in it makes a difference. You know, they talk about food, let food be medicine, medicine is food I concept. <clears throat> it's just fascinating to me on how we disassociate from our mental and emotional pain or suffering and ignore our physiological needs and the signals that the body's giving um, at the expense of our leadership, our time, our priorities, um, what we're striving for. It, it's just a human, it's a fascinating human game that we play and it fascinates me. Hilarious because it, obviously it ties back into what we were talking about with regard to self-awareness. You know, there's this idea of like, I can lead others. And with the self-awareness, you realize you have to lead yourself first. You, be aware of yourself, take your, create a strategy, create a vision of like, all right, what am I currently doing? What are the skills, uh, rules and knowledge-based errors that I'm making as well? You know, and then being having that awareness around it. And so probably... Until someone pointed it out, there's either a deflection to protect the ego, so to speak, or there's like a complete like, oh, oh, you're right. You know, this, this, uh, you know, unawareness of what it exactly is that they're doing, you know. So, yeah, I, <laughs> I find it so fascinating. We live by this, uh, this inability to see ourselves. We live in, inside our own blind spots, essentially, and how that can affect leadership by li living inside our blind spots so let's well let's talk about yours as well sorry you wanted to say you wanted to say well i was just going to close with a comment to say that is why to close the loop on this that is another reason why i liked uh the inner compass assessment is that it highlights the cage and the blind spots that we've self-imposed since childhood and that we've become it, it becomes so close to our perceived nature, our personality, that we cannot see the forest from the trees. It's so embedded in the way we think, feel, and how we justify and protect those patterns that we have, that unless you have, for me, an assessment that really highlights, again, the systemic holistic picture and offers you an opportunity to have an interpretation where you have a mirroring of a, a mirroring that allows you to create some sort of separation from this entanglement to actually consider uh, those patterns for the first time from a slightly more objective perspective. That to me is the beginning of what you're referring to as self-awareness and questioning and being curious about how much how much of these patterns have contributed to my pain and suffering and my leadership skills and what and how I'm compensating for these things so that you can actually make it a more objective realistic potentially uh exploration of yourself so that you can make those changes that you want as a leader or as a manager or as an individual. Yeah. So I just wanted to throw that out there. No, it makes a lot of sense. I think it comes back to that whole thing of like 
short-term gain for long-term like non-gain as you were saying you know the more you play the game of your you know your inner critic your psyche you're you're feeding into those blind spots you know short-term gain absolutely and then in the long term you're you know it's a recipe for disaster essentially yeah yeah that's a big deal well yeah so um you know we're coming up on you know an hour now so let's flip the conversation around to you and so um you know i've i've already mentioned that i've taken your training course as well um so tell me a little bit about what you're working on today let's roll out the red carpet for you and let's you know open it up um what is something that you want to share that you're up to yeah thanks so so uh, i have as a uh as a program a certification course we've talked a little bit about that so the next one i'm going to run is in april or may uh going to look at making my own versions of improvements to that and, and tweaks to that but it's really designated towards hr professionals leaders managers who want to lead teams or manage teams understand their leadership abilities in a different way as well as coaches uh, to work when working with clients to say, how can I get a better understanding of clients who are coming to me for all kinds of assorted reasons? <clears throat> and how do I best, how can I as a professional show up, have a uh, a clear tool in the toolbox and, and services that for me help clients for the first time, maybe uh, be seen, be heard, be understood in a way that creates, you mentioned earlier in our conversation around creating safe space. So psychological and physical safety. And I have found that as a whole, that when you use this assessment and coaches or therapists or professionals use it uh, and they use it in a way that feels safe, that phys- that psychological and physical safety that clients let down their guard and then it becomes a conversation of being heard, seen, and understood. And then to me, you have that on day one with clients. And as a result of that, the ability to be clear with root causes, root solutions, uh, root compensation patterns, and being able to excuse me, effectively identify that and create a roadmap um, just as for me uh, accelerates the change process. Um, Even as slow or as fast as it goes, um, it does provide it for me a clear roadmap. And so I get really excited about expanding that, looking to do more with that, Um, looking more about creating uh, an advanced report. So that's one of my projects that I have on on my plate that I'm trying to knock out. So I've been nickeling and diming that. What that basically entails is to um, create a report that is hypersensitive to your graph and your results and that mm-hmm. it's embedded embedded in a report so that those root causes and root compensation strategies are outlined in your report um, versus currently you get a basic report that outlines your core type and some ancillary types that are inf- influencing you, uh, et cetera, mm. along with your graph. So uh, I want right. to do some more advancement with that, with the report itself. 
Um, I want to also this year, I'm going to uh, revisit an advanced certification course that gets a little bit more into a concept called the false core triangle, which is more closely related to uh, childhood experiences and how to read the graph to identify those and how they show up, for example, in intimate partnerships or how they show mm. up in, in, in as a leader. I know that that's a big deal because like, you know, I know for a fact that people are interested in taking the report, you know, so which is available on your website as well. People can come and, and take the report and then optional with you is to do the debrief as well. Um, but what I've, what I also know um, is that obviously doing the report, not just with you, but um, like you and a partner, you know, so if, if I want to take this with my wife, then having that reading, that interpretation done within partnerships can talk to the strengths, the weaknesses, the points to consider, the blind spots as well. And then I know that, uh, I know for a fact you've obviously done this with uh, organizations and talking about this with regard to teams, talking about this with regard to, um, you know, doing readings between, let's say, a boss and their assistant as well in terms of communication styles that might work very well or modes of working or modes of identifying stress. So there's a lot in the report itself. And now you're going into like advanced reports as well. And, and, and then, of course, in, in doing so as well, you're talking about advanced certifications, which is, you know, another thing altogether. It's, very, it's a very deep system. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, and to piggyback on that, this past summer, I worked with uh, a team at Amazon of about 12 leaders. And so we did a lot of team dynamics and teamwork around how to use the report. And I created a team-based graph where I took all 12 leaders and created their own unique graph so that they can see themselves. This is what our team looks like, our team graph looks like. And then they were able to compare themselves to their team. And then we talked about... Um, how to leverage decision-making across the team. Where are the blind spots to your decision-making as a result of having a low whatever score and how that might impact the important decision-making that needs to occur. So yeah, there's all kinds of fun ways which you know the graph uh, can be created and looked at and understood through either teams, couples, partners, individual, um, you know, the whole gamut. So those are the things that are catching my attention so far for this year. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll see how things unfold. Uh, I've also considered, and I've, this will, this is the next phase, but I have also considered actually generating a couple's report where I actually have a graph, a two line graph one that shows partner one and one that shows partner two and their respective baselines all on one graph. I've considered playing around with that. So, you know, there's all kinds of fun things I'm trying to consider what would, what would be fun uh, and what would meet the needs of, of people um, of, of what they're really struggling and wrestling with. Absolutely. Yeah. What are people banging on your door to help you resolve? Yeah. That makes sense. Well, uh, thank you very much for your time and, and sharing your insights today, Jason. Uh, where can people go if they want to find out more about you, if they want uh, to connect a lot more? 
Yeah. So two places on Instagram, it's uh, inner compass. The number nine is my handle. And then my website is www.innercompass.com as well. All right. Wonderful. And yeah, for anyone who's interested, obviously there's, uh, there's going to be show notes to this and, you know, check out the descriptions and the links and all that kind of stuff. And then the other thing that, that I thought that I would bring onto the show is then uh, one of the books that we used heavily in the training was obviously the wisdom of the Enneagram. So if people wanted to, um, you know, go for like the plus one, like, oh, let me find out a little bit more about the Enneagram. But the one caveat to this is, of course, it's not the holistic interpretation. It doesn't look at the entirety of all of the numbers and how you influence, um, you know, your core type by using the behaviors of other numbers. So it's a good starting point, I feel. But, um, you know, if you're ready for it, check out the assessments, go into there. Um, that'd be quite an interesting one as well. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Jason. Is there anything that, that, uh, you want to share with us that you didn't get a chance to share? Um, that's a great question. Is there anything, you know, to me, uh, the, the fundamental thing is my bias is, is that we're all trying to figure out life. Um, and I would encourage people to find, um, to find a navigation system with, with the pun intended here of having an inner compass um, <laughs> to help to help you get really clear about the hidden motivations and the unconscious beliefs and how one's compensating for that. And as a result of that, how do I have um, how do I have some recommendations and strategies to actually be one-to-one, really be targeted strategies that I can prioritize because we don't have a lot of time, uh, so to speak. Uh, we're very busy. We have so many different things challenging our priorities and what gets our attention. So for me, having something like that assessment and the ability to say, ah, okay, let me get therefore really clear about things that I can practically take steps to address tactically the things that uh, I'm compensating for based upon beliefs, uh, <clears throat> I think saves a lot of time and energy and brings some clarity rather than just throwing stuff against the wall and seeing if it sticks. Um, yeah, appreciate it. And it minimizes the the burnout and the frustration with like the whack-a-mole game. So whether you're a leader, a manager, an individual, just living life like the rest of us, um, having a navigation system, whatever you so choose it to be, um, I think can be quite helpful. Wisdom, if ever there was wisdom. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for tuning into the Way of the Leader podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and gained valuable insights on effective leadership. Don't forget to subscribe to our Substack newsletter for more exclusive content and resources on leadership. If you are already a member, Jason will be sharing his top 10 essential skills for successful leadership. To make sure you don't miss this valuable list, be sure to subscribe if you have not already. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time on The Way of the Leader.